Welcome everybody to the final um, seminar in this series that's being built around the theme of the international political economy of East Asia. Um, today I'm extremely pleased to introduce to you Dr. Hugo Meyer, who is a lecturer in defence studies at King's College, University of London, and also a research associate at Sciences Po, um, uh, where I think uh, you completed your PhD. Yes. Uh, haven't yet discovered when that was, but it's not, not too long ago, I believe. Two years ago. And, uh, right. And is this book actually the fruit of that? Yes, the, exactly. That doctorate? Yep. So, you know, a nice heavy tone like this on a very important subject, and we're going to hear about it today. So, in many ways, this um, seminar is um, a book launch as well. So, it's a, it's a very opportune moment to hear about um, a new way of thinking uh, uh, of the the nexus between economics and security in the US-China relationship. Um, it's really only, I mean, just out a, a few days ago, I think, so we're very privileged to, to um, be on the cusp of um, this new venture. Um, it's with Oxford University Press, by the way. Um, so as I said, it explores one of the great puzzles of our time, and I think these are puzzles for both researchers as well as for policy makers. And that is how you, how, when you're dealing with a relationship like the US-China one, uh, you're sitting in Washington or you're sitting in Oxford trying to understand this relationship, um, understanding that the military and security competitors in, in many ways, but, uh, but very strongly interdependent in the economic realm. Um, and cooperative on a number of other global projects. So how do you balance these very different trends in, in your relationship? And the answer I think that the book gives, without having read the whole thing, I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing, but just dipping in it, is, is, is not to say in the end security dominates economics or economics dominates security. In fact, it's a far more complex relationship than that, um, and um, I'm hoping that <laughs> Hugo will be able to explain this complex relationship to us in the space of about 50 minutes, um, and then, as usual, we'll open for uh, questions and comments. And so, so thank you very much for joining us today, Hugo. I'll sit down here and leave it all to you. Well, thank you very much, Rosemary, and thank you very much for inviting me here. It's really a pleasure to be here. Um, so, as Rosemary pointed out, the, the book I'm presenting today is titled um, Trading with the Enemy, the Making of U.S. Export Control Policy Toward the People's Republic of China. It basically integrates the findings of my doctoral and postdoctoral research. Uh, the PhD was on U.S. export um, control policy toward China, which basically means the restrictions on arms transfers toward China. Uh, this is what we mean by expert control policy. Uh, the restriction on arms transfers and also what is called strategic trade, those technologies that have both civilian and military application. And in my postdoc, I focus mostly on a comparison between the US and the European approach on the controversial issue of the European arms embargo to China to try to expand the, the perspective to both the US and the EU. So what I'd like to discuss today is, first of all, well, why expert control policy? Because at first glance, this might seem a pretty technical and even dry subject. But in reality, I think it's a very interesting window 
into precisely this competing dynamics, this dialectic between strategic rivalry and economic interdependence. And so I'll briefly present the, the findings and the sources on which the study is based. And I'll then go through um, an analysis of the evolution of American export control policy toward China since the Korean War. And this can be divided in several um, periods from the 50s to the 17s, which basically laid the foundation for what then became US military cooperation, which took place essentially in the 1980s. So the bulk of strategic cooperation and arms transfers was really in the 80s. And then we'll see the evolution since 1989, the, um, the legacy of the Tiananmen Square sanctions, which greatly affected the US-China relations and US policy on arms transfers, and how in the past two decades, the rise of China, both from an economic and military perspective, and this growing enmeshment of the economy of the US and China has greatly complicated US export control policy. And I'll conclude with some implications for the broader US-China relationship and for the future of American primacy in world politics. So there are two key themes that emerge from this study. Um, the first one is what could be called the hopelessness of cont containment. Um, in a nutshell, one of the key findings, main findings of the book, is that the US is no longer able to apply a strategy of military and technological containment vis-a-vis -vis China as it did with the uh, Soviet Union during the Cold War. And the second finding, which is direct consequence of the first one, is that um, because of this hopelessness of containment, there's a growing number of actors in Washington that have reassessed the nexus between security and economics at play in US-China relations. Uh, while during the Cold War, there was a common assumption which was basically that of a trade-off between security or economics. In the post-Cold era, many more actors have sought to um, have reassessed this relationship and have expanded the, um, their definition of security and to include economic and security uh, consideration. I'll come back to this point in a moment. So why expert control policy? Um, precisely so, um, since the end of the Cold War, the US-China economic relationship has been characterized by um, a mixture of economic interdependence and strategic rivalry. So on the one hand, since at least 1979, the establishment of diplomatic and economic relations, the two economies have gone increasingly interdependent. Uh, but at the same time, especially since the early 90s, there have been growing concern within successive US administration on the implications of China's military modernization. So China's com the combination of China's increased defense budgets, foreign technology imports, domestic research and development, and military industrial espionage have fueled a major military modernization process. Uh, which has led some American policymakers to define China as the U.S. most likely near-peer competitor. Um, and David Chambaugh has captured this image of um, strategic rivalry and economic interdependence when he speaks about these two countries being um, tangled titans, which are locked in a co cooperative competitive dynamic. And so since the end of the Cold War, uh, a key challenge has be, 
how to balance this conflicting national security and economic interest. And this was well synthesized, in my view, by a former ambassador and then Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, Winston Lord. Um, he stated that, he asked, how do we reconcile our competing goals in the post-Cold War agenda when security concerns no longer lend us a clear hierarchy? And these trade-offs between security economics are arguably one of the key features of the, the post-Cold War international system. So it's critically important in the U.S.-China relationship, but arguably it extends beyond the U.S.-China relationship. Um, so, in line of the intertwining logics of military, uh, military rivalry and economic interdependence, the book examines precisely how the U.S. has balanced these conflicting interests. And to do so, it really focuses on this um, unexplored dimension of the U.S.-China relationship, which is uh, American export control policy toward China since 1979, essentially. The bulk of the empirical work I did was on, from 1979 up until the present. So again, why export controls? Because they really stand at the frontier between, on the one hand, military interests, so the desire to avoid transferring sensitive technology to a rival um, in order to maintain military preeminence and avoid uh, building, contributing to uh, modernizing the defense capabilities of a competitor. But on the other hand, economic interests, which, on, which on, um, on the opposite would require expanding exports in order to create jobs, expanding um, economic growth, etc. So there is this constant trade-off that must be balanced. So uh, this is why I think it's a useful case study to investigate this security economic nexus. Um, yes, briefly on exactly what I'm focused on in the book, it's uh, both military equipment, but also strategic trade, as I said, these dual-use technologies, and in particular satellites and information technology. Why? Because these are the key technologies that form the backbone of what we call the revolutions in military affairs. And they have been key in uh, both the dif uh, transformation of uh, American and Chinese armed forces since the end of the Cold War. So I'll skip the theoretical part. Uh, we can come back to that in the Q&A if you want. But we would like to move on to the, um, the key findings. Um, as I said, the, key, the, f the first finding is that of hopelessness of a strategy of military technological containment. Mm, why? And there are four factors, and I'll come back to that in, in, on the evolution of these factors in the Cold War and the post-Cold War era, which have led to this hopelessness of containment. The first one is the weakening of the multilateral institutions that has governed expert controls. It used to be COCOM, the Coordinating Committee for Multilateral Expert Controls, which collapsed with the collapse of the Soviet Union and was replaced with a much weaker institution called the Vasner Arrangement. The second driver <coughs> is technology. We've seen increasingly um, a global diffusion of technology and commercialization of technology. Note that many technologies that have military applications are today produced by the commercial sector and not the military sector. The commercial sector is much more globalized and is therefore much more than the military sector and is therefore much harder to control the diffusion of these technologies. Thirdly, China's growing indigenous capacities, 
So the more China is able to develop itself advanced technology, the less US restrictions on those technologies will have any impact or will be, so they will be increasingly ineffective. And the fourth driver, which is a key difference with the Cold War period, is that precisely because of this growing economic interdependence between the two countries, there, there has been the creation of vested interests within the American society, uh, starting in the 80s, as we'll see, but increasingly um, influential in uh, the post-Cold War period, which have pushed uh, hard to loosen the restrictions on military-related exports. So we have both external and domestic dynamics that have led to what I call this hopelessness of containment. And again, direct consequence has been a reassessment of the relationship between security and economics. And I'll come back to that. So in terms of sources that I've used for this study, uh, it relies on a range of primary sources, including 199 interviews, declassified documents, and um, diplomatic cables from WikiLeaks. So briefly, um, 170 interviews conducted in Washington, D.C., um, and approximately 30 for my postdoctoral research in Paris, Beijing, and Shanghai. Um, and they are focused, for instance, in the U.S., mostly on the National Security Council, Pentagon, State Department, Department of Commerce, but also CIA, NSA, congressional staffers, representatives of the arms industry. I've done interviews in France because France has been the country which has pushed the harder since the end of the Cold War to, to uh, lift the European arms embargo. And so we have this very diverging perspective between France and the US. And in China, I've interviewed mostly uh, US and European officials in China, but also um, Chinese researchers, uh, scholars, and representatives of the Chinese high-tech industry. Declassified documents from National Archives, National Security Archives, a couple of presidential libraries, and interestingly, 80 diplomatic cables, which give a wealth of information on all the debates in Washington about uh, what to do about arms transfers to China. And yes, the importance of primary sources was that there was no uh, monograph on this topic, on this uh, dimension of the US-China relationship. So there were no reliable secondary sources, so I really gave a very um, particular attention to primary sources. So let's see a little bit how this uh, US policy has evolved, <clears throat> starting from the Korean War up until the present. We'll see that there were two key trends in US export control policy during the Cold War. The first, to go back to the findings, is the effectiveness of this containment strategy of US Western export controls. Um, the multilateral institutions governing export controls was COCOM, as I said, a coordinating committee for multilateral export controls, which basically included NATO countries plus Japan. And these countries had a common threat perception. Uh, which allowed them to impose uh, multilateral and agreed-upon expert controls. And in these institutions, it might seem a detail, but the, the institutions provided for a veto power for each member state. So if the U.S. did not want um, another member state to export sensitive technology um, to the Soviet Union, for instance, it might pose a veto. So the multilateral institutions was highly effective. On the technological level, COCOM countries, so the West and Japan, had basically an oligopoly, which a technological oligopoly, 
um, which allowed them to restrict the transfer of the most sensitive technology because they were the key producers. And finally, there was little US-China and more broadly East-West economic relations and so very little domestic pressures. And so overall, the containment strategy uh, was effective essentially. And the evolution of security economic considerations during the Cold War could be synthesized as following. Um, the US moved from balancing heterogeneous security interests, so it was only about managing security interests from the 50s up until the late 70s. And in the 80s, because of growing economic inter interactions with China, this started to have to balance security and economic considerations. So it is really in the 80s that this uh, first dilemma of how to balance economics and security emerges in the bilateral relationship. And this leads to internal coalition of actors, um, which I call the control hawks um, and the pro-trade coalition. So the hawks willing to impose stringent restriction and the pro-trade coalition <coughs> willing to uh, favor trade, which competed in the decision-making process. So with the, um, starting in the 50s, of course, the US-China relationship was fraught with strategic distrust. And after the, um, the, um, the beginning of the Korean War in 1950, the US imposed an, international, I mean, imposed an embargo on China and pushed its allies to, to do the same, essentially. So Western Europe and Japan also moved to um, impose an arms uh, a trade embargo on China. Interestingly, during these two decades, the 50s and the 60s, the US was much more willing to implement harsher controls than its allies. And it also implemented, as we'll see, harsher controls on China than it did on the Soviet Union. So to give some background, in 1949, this was really the ushering of the Cold War. 1949 is the date of the creation of two key institutions for, um, in this topic. So the first one is NATO. But the second one, the same year, is the creation of COCOM, which would coordinate multilateral export controls until the end of the Cold War. It was based in an annex, in an annex of the US Embassy in Paris, and its stated goal was to maintain a qualitative edge on the battlefield by a virtual prohibition of sales on uh, arms to communist countries and by controlling the export of strategic products and technical data. So this is the rationale for the establishment of COCOM. Again, the two key features of COCOM were its veto power and the common threat perception. So when the uh, Korean War um, started, the US again moved to impose a national and international arms embargo. And within COCOM, um, the, the CHINCOM was established, which was a China committee which was the group within COCOM in charge of restricting sales to China. This led to the so-called China differential, which is the exports to China were, um, the restraint on exports to China were uh, harsher than those imposed on the Soviet Union. And why is it so? First of all, the US considered that um, China was the single greater security threat of the US in East Asia because of what US officials perceived as aggressive Chinese foreign policy and uh, Mao's commitment to sponsor, support, and direct wars of national liberation. And secondly, they thought that 
by creating this China differential, uh, they would strain relationship over time between Beijing and Moscow because this would lead China to um, become overly dependent on Moscow and that this could in turn contribute to the emerging Sino-Soviet uh, split. So this was the rationale behind putting harsher control on China than on the Soviet Union. But the, um, some Western uh, countries, especially Britain, um, by the late 50s started to disagree with US policy. They perceived that um, the security concerns were receding because the, the Korean War had ended, and they therefore abolished this multilateral China differential, and Shinkom was abolished. And the US pursued a unilateral China differential up until the 70s. So this demonstrates the US has been willing to impose much harsher controls on China than its allies. Now, things start to change in the early 70s with the rapprochement. So with rapprochement, the, um, the US administration abandons this China differential and moves on to what is called the, the policy of even-handedness, meaning that they would treat exports of sensitive technology to China in the same way they would with the Soviet Union. They would allow for the same level of technology. What led, in a nutshell, the Nixon administration to move toward rapprochement were primarily strategic considerations. There were no, the economic interests loomed very little in the US-China relation back then. For instance, in 1971, the US had virtually no zero exports to China. So again, in this period, it was mainly and purely about balancing and managing security interests. The short-term objective was to facilitate the negotiation to end the Vietnam War by isolate, isolating Hanoi um, from the PRC and thereby bringing pressure on the North Vietnamese to adopt a more conciliatory posture in the negotiations. But in the longer term, the idea was to take advantage of the Sino-Soviet split and to create a US-China strategic partnership that could provide the US with greater leverage on the Soviet Union. And this is what, uh, why uh, Kissinger, um, in a now today declassified documents, called the US and China tacit allies. Rapprochement had repercussions for U.S. arms and, um, and uh, um, transfers to China. So this was accompanied by gesture to loosen the restriction on trade to China. And in 71, the U.S. lifted the embargo on trade with the People's Republic of China. So we see really this movement from the China differential to even-handedness. They abolished the China differential. They established this policy of even-handedness. However, Throughout the 70s, mid to late 70s, uh, the security cooperation between the two countries loses momentum, mostly for two reasons. One is the domestic challenges in both countries, uh, with the death of Mao uh, in 76 and the Watergate scandal in the US. And at the same time, the US had competing security interests because it wanted to foster cooperation with China, but this was in the context of detente. So they did not want to foster um, too much cooperation in the strategic domain with China um, for the fear of antagonizing the Soviet Union because they were negotiating a strategic arms limitation agreement. And so there were these conflicting security interests. 79 marks a turning point. Um, Soviet policy is increasingly perceived as aggressive with its behavior in um, 
in Africa, for instance, in Ethiopia, in Afghanistan, its military buildup in East Asia. And this prompts the US and China to move to the last uh, steps of normalizing their diplomatic relations, which they do. And the diplomatic relations are established on January 1st, 1979. Now, what is interesting for the development of American export control policy is that 1979 and diplomatic relations really laid the foundations for uh, scientific and technological exchange between the two countries. So they signed several agreements on science and technology, a trade agreement that granted China most favored nations, and this really laid the foundation for the expansion of economic, uh, scientific, and technological exchanges between the two countries. As Michael Oxenberg stated, by the summer of 1979, the relation between the two countries had extended to all areas but the military affairs. And this is where the year 1979 is a, a, a key turning point, really with not only the establishment of diplomatic relations, but in December, the Soviet invasion of uh, Afghanistan. And this prompts the US to move from even-handedness to what we call the pro-China tilt. So moving, tilting to China, which translates in a policy of uh, favoring China um, at the expense of the Soviet Union through, among other things, um, a very intense program of military cooperation between the two countries. And this military cooperation throughout the 80s lost until 1989 with the Tiananmen Square crackdown. And so what we see emerging is a new China differential, but this time it's at the expense of the Soviet Union. It's basically favoring China at the in terms of arms transfer and defense technology experts at the expense of the Soviet Union. And so they, base, they forged this strategic cooperation, in the, which really um, increases throughout the 1980s, and is based upon military exchanges, intelligence sharing, and defense technology transfers. Um, I think what is important is to, in order to understand the rationale and the trends in the U.S.-China strategic cooperation in the 80s, is to compare it with the, the U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union during those same years. On the one hand, the U.S. established, <coughs> so <coughs> continued, uh, continues this policy of containment vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. So there is a, a presidential directive which states that the goal of the U.S. is to contain and over time reverse Soviet expansionism, um, and particularly in the overall military balance, basically. And this will remain the primary focus of US policy toward the Soviet Union. And to do so, it goes on to say that the US needs to ensure that East-West economic relations do not facilitate Soviet military buildup. And this requires the prevention of transfer of technology uh, that could make a substantial contribution to Soviet military power. So this is the policy of the US vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. The strategy has two pillars, essentially. Um, the one, one is to leap ahead, to invest in research and development, to develop, to, to develop state-of-the-art technology, and, um, and have a qualitative edge vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union had quantitative preponderance. The West was seeking to have a qualitative edge. And at the same time, the second pillar was this idea of keeping them behind through a system, precisely, of multilateral expert controls, which was the, the, the role of COCOM. 
And there was, by the way, uh, um, interviews um, have showed that uh, there was a non-state policy in the U.S. administration uh, which aimed very precisely at keeping the Soviet Union two technological generations behind the United States. And this policy was then applied to China in the post-Cold War era. But this is a non-stated policy. It was, as, as the interview says, it's, it was not a stated policy, but it was a non-stated policy. It was pretty clear. Now, there was this bifurcated approach, therefore, vis-a-vis -vis uh, Moscow and vis-a-vis -vis Beijing. Vis-a-vis -vis Beijing, there were several key decisions that uh, considerably expanded U.S. Uh, strategic cooperation. One was the so-called Green Line policy, which massively loosened the restrictions on arms transfers and strategic trade vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. It established a system of red, yellow, and green zone to distinguish between different types of technologies. Uh, I won't go into too much details, but it also established a U.S.-China space cooperation agreement basically allowing for U.S. satellites to be launched on Chinese launchers. And so the key trends have been, throughout the 80s, uh, rapidly expanding transfers of dual, uh, arms and dual-use technologies, um, increasingly frequent military visits and exchanges between the two countries. The U.S. and China also cooperated in building the PLA National Defense University in 86, and there was intelligence sharing. So a uh, very large intelligence sharing program, including providing the Chinese with intelligence on Soviet troop deployments. Um, and the US also established stations on Chinese territory to monitor nuclear tests by the Soviet Union, because they had just lost their uh, sites, um, the radars in Iran because of the revolution, and they moved some of these radars <coughs> on Soviet territory. So I won't go into too much details. But looking at the, the rationale be behind this <coughs> strategic operation, the literature tends to overwhelmingly assume that it was mostly about playing the China card against the Soviet Union in the strategic triangle between uh, Washington, Moscow, and Beijing. However, uh, the classified documents really show that the picture is a little bit more complex. Um, it was, the policy was not simply driven by this idea of using the China card. There were competing national security interests, and the, the U.S. really faced delicate trade-offs in establishing this arms transfer program vis-a-vis -vis China. So on the one hand, certainly, there was a China card, so bolster China's military capabilities vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. But there were several security considerations that led them to restrain significant amount of technology transfers to China. First of all, they had to protect the interests of their allies and partners in the, in the Asia-Pacific, Taiwan, Japan, and South Korea. And so they could not export critical technology uh, that would enhance China's offensive capabilities vis-a-vis -vis these partners. And even though there was a policy of containment of the Soviet Union, the U.S. did not want to destabilize diplomatic relations with Moscow. So this was the second consideration. Again, there were um, the, the SALT negotiations, Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, which were utmost importance. And finally, and interestingly, in the um, second half of the 80s, the U.S. starts using strategic cooperation as a foreign policy tool to influence China's foreign, uh, sorry, proliferation behavior in the Middle East. So they established a very explicit linkage policy, which is very clearly stated in the declassified documents, 
in which they, they said to China, basically, if you want to continue strategic uh, cooperation and receive arms from Washington, you will need to modify your proliferation approach vis-a-vis -vis Saudi Arabia and Iran. So this was a very effective um, diplomatic tool. And so this is why they restricted the export of key technology in the nuclear, anti-submarine, intelligence, power projection domain, among others. So again, the picture is slightly more complex than the uh, general assumption. I can go into, I can provide like mm, interviews and the classified documents to support this um, statement. But what changes in the 1980s is, as I mentioned, the, the more inter economic interactions, the more transfers of technology and economic changes, um, the more, of course, a bilateral trade uh, rises. So it rose from 1 billion to 20 billion in, the, in these 10 years. And the impact on the American society has been quite considerable. So what is interesting is that even though this strategic cooperation was built upon a security rationale, so essentially in this Cold War uh, framework, the cumulative effect of US-China strategic cooperation, the fact that China was also opening up with economic reforms and then increasing bilateral economic ties led increasing sectors of American society to acquire a stake in the deepening of the US-China relationship. And therefore, there were vested interests that started from the 80s onwards to push to increase uh, exports to China, both economic but also in the military domain. And so, in a nutshell, the US moved from shifting heterogeneous national security interests in the, from the 50s to the 70s to the 80s, where they started balancing national security and economic considerations. Um, yes, this is briefly a quote by, by Winston Lord, again, ambassador and then assistant secretary of state. And he said very clearly there was a tension between the importance of helping jobs and exports for the Americans versus giving Chinese, China some technology that could be used against our own interests. And this very clearly synthesizes this idea of a trade-off between national security and economics, which permeated U.S. policies throughout the 80s. But this entire program of military cooperation collapses, essentially, in 1989 uh, with the Tiananmen crackdown, uh, crackdown on Tiananmen Square. And it also leads um, to growing interbranch tensions. So the executive branch and Congress starts um, having considerable frictions in the definition of American export control policy. And Congress would become much more influential in the making of well, US-China more broadly, but also on arms transfer and will use sales to the People's Republic of China. Okay. So this, is, this was a synthesis of an evolution of several decades um, throughout the Cold War. With the collapse of the Soviet Union, the foundation for US-China strategic cooperation collapsed. And at the same time, we've seen with the, um, the rise of China a growing strategic rivalry developing uh, simultaneously with economic interdependence, as we said. And this considerably complicated the making of American export control policy to China. So again, key trends for the post-Cold War era. The first is the weakening 
So the, the first is basically the, the collapse of the capacity of the US to impose a strategy of military and technological containment. There is a decreased effectiveness of US and Western export controls um, because of four reasons, again. The weakening of the multilateral institutions, technology, growing indigenous capabilities by China, and growing domestic pressures. And I'll come back to these different points and how they shaped US policy in the post-Cold War period. This is from a former director uh, of the Pentagon China desk, which summarizes this point. He says, our ability to be a determining factor in what technologies are available to China has greatly diminished. So policymakers in Washington have become increasingly aware of their decreased capacity to influence China's access to foreign technology. Um, so, the weakening of the multilateral institutions. The, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the key target of COCOM collapsed. And this greatly affected multilateral export controls because it opened up uh, a Pandora box, if I may say so, of disagreements mostly based on economic consideration between Western Europe and the Americans. France, Britain, and Germany wanted to, if not get rid of this institution, loosen it, weaken these multilateral institutions in order to facilitate trade. And therefore, a, tra a transatlantic chasm developed between what used to be COCOM allies and partners. The US wanted to maintain a veto power and a list of target countries, just as they did with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. They wanted to target very specific countries, what they called rogue regimes, and China. But the, American, the European capitals, the key players being Berlin, London, and Paris, wanted, again, a loser institutions with no veto power and no country target list. So these are two um, officials that personally negotiated the, the transition from COCOM to the new institution. And they said, in fact, no ally was willing to restrict technology to China. There was never any opportunity to get restriction in China. And this is because the Europeans saw, according to the other official, China more as an economic opportunity than as a military competitor. And so the US was compelled to accept a new institutions much weaker with no veto power and no country targets lists. And again, the weakening of this institution is a key factor that reduced the capacity of the US to establish unilateral and multilateral export controls vis-a-vis -vis China. The second factor that I mentioned is technology. Um, and is this global diffusion of uh, and commercialization of dual-use technologies, which made basically U.S. export controls to China increasingly ineffective. Why? I don't want to get too technical, but I think this is really important. The development of sensitive technology and of advanced technology has moved, shifted from the military sector. So if you think of the GPS and Internet, they were all developed by the military sector and then spinned off. They would then sh um, there was a spillover to the commercial sector. Now the trend is reversed. You see that this is commercial research and development, and this is federal government research and development in the US. So the center of gravity in the development of advanced technology has really shifted to the commercial sector. And what's the implication for what we're discussing? It's that the commercial sector is much, it's absolutely globalized. There are global production networks. 
And it's therefore much easier for China and other countries to access sensitive technology. And this is a key change if we consider it with, in comparison to the Cold War. So that's another factor that weakened the capacity of the US to restrict what kind of technology China could access. And then again, growing economic interdependence leads to significant domestic pressure to loosen controls. Um, let me see. Yes, you, basically what we see is growing pressure from the uh, US business community, which coalesces in coalitions, actually. Um, the main one being the National Foreign Trade Council, which have pushed increasingly hard as economics in the, as the importance of economics in the US-China relationship improved. These coalitions really pushed harder and harder the US government to loosen controls. So in the, in the words of a former defense official, from within there are pressure to loosen controls, and from the outside there are dynamics that make controls less and less relevant, namely multilateral institutions and technology. So again, we see these domestic and international pressures on the state, on the United States. And finally, the growing indigenous capabilities of China. The more China can produce advanced technology, the less US expert controls have um, a raison d'etre. So China has developed, um, has improved significantly both in, in terms of um, arms procurement, but also in dual use technology. This is just to give an example. These are supercomputers. These can be used, are used for meteorological um, provisions, pr uh, predictions. But they are also used to simulate nuclear weapons explosion, refine the guidance of ballistic missiles. So this is the kind of technology that is proliferating and that the US can, um, is increased less and less able to control. What have been ch uh, China's main pillar in, the in this modernization process, in, the, in building up its um, military capabilities? The first one is indigenous innovation. The second is civil military integration. And the third one, which is the key for our discussion, is the acquisition of foreign technology, both arms and dual-use technology, and through both licit and covert means. So first of all, China's spending on R&D has substantially increased in the past decades. So China is increasingly uh, moving up the ladder of research and development. Second pillar, um, and I want to be brief on this, but it's the integration of civil and military research and development and production facilities. And as I said before, precisely because techn um, the technological innovation is increasingly led by the civilian sector, this is a key driver for willing to integrate civilian and military activities, which can contribute to um, modernize faster the capabilities, the armed forces of China. And the third pillar is the acquisition of foreign arms and dual-use technology. So there, there is a policy um, of, in China of aiming in the long term at achieving self-sufficiency in arms procurement, but in the short to medium term, uh, it, by necessity, um, it is acquiring foreign te technology in order to complement and support its indigenous efforts. So there is this balance between indigenous capabilities and foreign imports. And we see here who is arming China, basically. Um, it is essentially Russia for 17, uh, almost 70% of China's arms imports, then France, 
despite the arms embargo, and I'll come back to that, uh, Ukraine, so the aircraft carrier that China is working on has been imported from Ukraine, for instance. And this is just a composition of imports by China. This is the evolution of Russian arms export to China. The, the decrease in the past decade is mostly due to two reasons. is the um, concern about reverse engineering, so China basically stealing technology from Russia, and Russia's concerns about the growing relative capabilities of China, in a nutshell. So Russia, again, has been the main provider of weapon system to China, and the US or the West have little to no leverage on these major arms producers. And again, this is the difference with the Cold War, where the key technological producers were all um, joined together in COCOM. Today, the key, the key supplier of China is not, um, has not, is not participating in a joint strategy of containment. Israel has been a main source of technologies to China until the mid-2000s, when the U.S. basically started imposing very harsh diplomatic pressures on Tel Aviv. And since then, Israel stopped retransferring American technology to the Chinese. And then there is the entire debate of the European military sales to the PRC. So basically, in 1989, the European Union imposed um, a non-legally binding embargo, which is just a political declaration, and because it's not legally binding, every country has a different interpretation of what arms means in the declaration on the arms embargo. Um, so it is basically a patchwork of national embargoes, which has led to significant arms sales to China. So for instance, the UK covers only legal weapons that are likely to be used for internal repression. France has a different interpretation lethal military equipment and major weapons platform, which gives some room for maneuver. And this is why Britain, both Britain and especially France, have authorized considerable arms sales to China. 90% uh, of European arms sales to China are from France, actually. And this is the evolution of their um, exports to China. So, we see that um, despite the, the US arms embargo, there are main producers that, such as Russia, but also key European producers that are exporting significant amount of arms and dual use technology to China. And the US has little or no leverage on them, essentially. Um, a second route for China's military modernization is the dual use goods and technology. Because there is a US embargo, there is this loose and non-legally binding European embargo, but as China is transitioning toward this uh, civil-military integration, and it's increasingly enmeshed in, uh, in global commerce, it has relied increasingly upon an additional source of technology acquisition, which is these dual-use technologies I was mentioning before. And dual-use technologies are produced by the commercial sector. So, for instance, commercial aviation, space technology, information and communication technologies, these are all civilian technologies with military applications that are basically fueling China's military modernization and which are much harder to control than major weapon systems. And this is a report uh, found in uh, the French Department of Commerce and we see that China is by far the largest recipient of French to use experts, for instance. And the US as well. 
the US, China is the largest single export market for controlled technology. It's 80% almost of total US dual use exports. So the, the US is really also exporting a lot of dual use technology to China. And of course, there is also the, all the issue of industrial and technological espionage by China. So the bottom line here is that despite the US unilateral embargo, uh, because of the uneven interpretation of Europeans' arms embargo, which has led to significant arms sales to China, and because of the significant dual-use technology that is fueling China military modernization, um, this testifies to the hopelessness of applying a Western strategy of military containment vis-a-vis -vis China in the post-Cold War strategic, technological, and economic environment. Uh, this is a quote by Stephen Bryan, uh, Stephen Bryan who was one of the key architects of export controls and arms transfer policy under Reagan and then was in the US-China Economic and Security Review Commission. He stated very clearly, the kind of paradigm that we developed to deal with the Soviet Union cannot be applied to China. Trying to do so is lost cause. And the potential today of using export control mechanism to protect our interests vis-a-vis -vis China is minimal if it exists at all. The U.S. government no longer has an ability to use expert controls to control anything or almost anything. And I think this very nicely summarizes um, what I've been trying to demonstrate. And so the consequence of that has been an evolution in the thinking in many actors in Washington about the nexus between national security and economics. So they've moved beyond what used to be this trade-off between security and economics with the goal of maintaining American primacy in the military technological domain. This, what I call the run faster coalition in this book, basically has two tenets. It belief system has two key tenets. The first is what I just sought to demonstrate. So the, the ability of the US to restrict transfers has greatly eroded. And the second point is because the Pentagon is increasingly dependent on technologies that are developed in the commercial sector, the US has a national security interest in loosening export controls and facilitating this trade because the companies will then reinvest the revenues in research and development, develop state-of-the-art technology, and therefore the Pentagon will have access to state-of-the-art technologies to run faster than its competitors. So here the nexus security economics has been reversed. So for instance, this is from a uh, Department of Commerce official. He said, you have the situation today where the Pentagon needs IBM more than IBM needs the Pentagon. So the next step is how do you keep IBM healthy and profitable? And there's only one way, exports. And this is ex an exact reversal of US uh, policies during the Cold War. Um, a former assistant to the president said the traditional, clearly said that the traditional dichotomy of economic prosperity versus security is in fact a false dichotomy. So instead of merely trying to keep China behind with restriction, this coalition of actors, which is increasingly influential in the US, believes that loosening controls and sustaining the US defense and technological industrial base will allow them to run faster, to stay ahead of potential competitors in the strategic, technological, and economic environment. Now, I'm sorry here for the long quote, but this is, I think, very interesting. It's a former Undersecretary of Commerce. And 
he says, in the way the world has evolved, I do not think we balance commercial interests and security interests. Historically, it was bifurcated. There were the commercial agencies and the national security agencies. But over the past years, there has been an increasing capability to integrate the analysis. Today, traditional national security agencies, and refers mostly to the Pentagon, are acutely aware of how economic interests impact traditional national security equities. And the reason is that many defense-related technologies shifted from being driven by innovation and research in the, in the Pentagon um, to be driven by the commercial sector, who critically relies on exports. And the US has therefore real security interest in the competitiveness and innovation capabilities of our commercial technology industries. So we see a growing awareness in the Pentagon of the shifting nexus between security and economics. So to conclude, how has the dynamic changed from the Cold War to the post-Cold War era? So in the Cold War, as we've seen, the US had the two-pronged containment strategy, which was based on one pillar, leap ahead, invest in military uh, research and development, and keep them behind, so through this multilateral control system, expert control system. In the post-Cold War era, as we've seen, the military technological containment of China has become increasingly unviable. And so the US can today only effectively rely upon one of the pillars it used to um, rely upon during the Cold War, which is this idea of leap ahead. Secondly, the national security economic nexus at the root of American primacy has also been fundamentally revised. Why? Because potential competitors today have access to those commercial developed military related technologies which are available on the global markets. And therefore the US must complement this leap ahead, this R&D and production activities in military technologies with excelling and be the first to integrate commercial and military technologies. So we see that the intertwining and overlapping of these logics of military competition and economic interdependence has really um, attest really the growing complexity of interstate rivalry in a globalized economy. Uh, Pentagon reports stress that uh, these trends could pose a direct challenge to the fundamental assumption underlying the modern concept of US global military leadership, namely that the US enjoys disproportionately greater access to advanced technologies than its potential competitors. However, it remains to be seen whether the security, technological, and uh, economic dynamics that I've been discussing will erode or won't erode American primacy in world politics in the face of a rising China. Thank you very much, and I very much look forward to your questions. Thank you so much.